this evening. It's been quite a while. Um, I think the last time I did a Monday night was in person on the land sometime in 2018, I believe. It's a good, so it's good to be with you all. Um, as Ileana said, my name is Devin Barry. I've uh, been practicing since 1999. Uh, I'm a guiding teacher at IMF, Inside Meditation Society. I lived here in the Bay Area for about 30 years and moved away to New England for the last several years. Um, I'm back in the Bay Area. I'm here in Berkeley, actually coming to you from Berkeley, California this evening. Uh, I'm a father of two. I began in the Thich Nhat Hanh uh, Plum Village tradition and have been an insight practitioner for a good number of years and mostly doing a lot of long retreat practice. And yeah, it was mentored by Carol Wilson and Larry Yang and Joseph Goldstein and Andrea Fella. So, and there's much more to say. And uh, actually, I'll, I'll add a little bit once I start the uh, reflections. So we're going to sit together first for a bit. So we'll sit for 20, 25 minutes, and I will guide, lightly guide the first part of the meditation, and then we will sit together in silence, have a little break, and then I'll offer some, some reflections for there. Okay. So as I always like to say with, our, with meditation and meditations that I often guide, the object of the meditation ultimately is less important than our relationship with the meditation object. So really bringing a, a, a kind curiosity is, is key, right? We want to cultivate the resting of attention on an object, whether that's the breath or body or style. Resting there, allowing body and mind to soften, to quiet, and allowing the heart to open. So as you're ready, just come into presence, finding in your posture a balance, a balance between relaxation and ease, uprightness and alertness, and letting your attention open to any sounds that may bring a, a sense of openness and receptivity. So connect and rest in any sounds. Could be a hum or a current of something in the background of your environment. Could be the sound of my voice. And as you've made that connection or, or, or not, you can connect with sensations arising and passing in the body. Perhaps noticing a, a softening, a spreading, noticing a tightness or warmth, coolness, numbness, whatever sensations are present. And then connect with the body sitting as it is, knowing the bottom on a cushion or the head on a pillow. Getting a sense of the entire body expanding and contracting, perhaps. You may connect with the warm or cool air at the nostrils, the rise and fall at the chest or at the belly, and settle into a steady knowing of that experience moment after moment.
if other experiences come in that naturally draw your attention, and let that experience become the new focus of mindfulness, of awareness. And we do so with a receptive, almost listening posture, curious, gentle. And we can always know the skillful means of finding the breath. And resting there, if there's some confusion or resting in sensations of the body, sounds happening, all knowing the skillful means of resting and awareness, allowing whatever to come and go as best you can. We sit and know we're sitting. Sit and know you're sitting.
for these last few moments, recommitting to your posture, knowing the experience of breathing, the natural experience of breathing in and breathing out, whether that's the warm or cool air at the nostrils, rise and fall at the chest, the in and out at the belly, knowing of sensations arising and passing in the body, sounds coming and going. Just resting there with curiosity, gentleness, All conditioned things arise and pass away. Knowing this deeply brings about the greatest happiness. Thank you all for your practice. And as I understand, we'll have a, a short break and come back for the reflection. Just a couple of minutes.
Okay, welcome back, everyone. So tonight I'll offer some reflections on compassion and the fragility of life, holding ourselves and others in the heart. Um, I'll do so through a bit of the suttas and several stories. So really just hold with curiosity what moves and inspires you, what resonates, and let all the rest go. So I'll start with some of the words of the Buddha from the Sutta. Uh, It's from the Dhammapada. They go to many a refuge, to mountains, forests, parks, trees, and shrines, people threatened with danger. That's not the secure refuge. That's not the highest refuge. That's not the refuge having gone to which you gain release from all suffering and stress. Having gone for refuge to the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha, you see with wise discernment the Four Noble Truths, stress, the cause of stress, the transcending of stress, and the Noble Eightfold Path, the way to distilling of stress. That's the secure refuge. That's the highest refuge. That is the refuge having gone to which you gain release from all suffering and stress. So a few years into my practice with Thich Nhat Hanh's Plum Village Sangha, I was given a Dharma name. I was given the name Peaceful Gardener of the Heart, or sometimes translated as Joyful Gardener of the Heart. And I hadn't much thought of myself as particularly peaceful or joyful, and in fact, quite the opposite. And I think subconsciously or secretly, I was hoping to be named something like Braveheart or Thunder Mountain, something pretty over the top and ridiculous. And I did thank the, the monks and nuns, the brothers and sisters for this new name, but said, given that at, at that time, my sometimes sarcastic, snarky, really aversive, prickly personality, I didn't think I was deserving of this name, Peaceful or Joyful. And one of the nuns who knew me well enough agreed, nodding, oh, I know. I know you're not very joyful or peaceful, but it's what you to aspire to. Keep planting the seeds, water them, bring them to the light, and watch them grow, and you'll grow into the name. Meeting all the vulnerable and fragile parts of life and be able to quiet your mind, tend to your heart, and respond accordingly. So here I am, all these years later, this Monday evening, still with this intention to tend to the heart, to garden, to meet the fragility and vulnerability of life. And it's this fragility of life that inspires compassion as we're all experiencing the same fleeting, unpredictable journey. Life in all of its forms is delicate and ephemeral. And sometimes when I see one of my adult daughters, I meet her eyes in the very same way I did during the very few first week of her life when I could hold her in my forearm and hand. And that's where this, this deeply held knowing, this tenderness, this awareness imbued with compassion and understanding that life is tender and beautiful. And this, I, re- I remember vowing to protect her delicate life, fragile as it is. And at the same time, knowing that I can't protect her from everything and sometimes nothing at all. 
and it sets the heart trembling, quivering. We know from the first noble truth that the first noble truth is the truth of suffering. This truth acknowledges that suffering is um, as a natural intrinsic part of life, no matter how wealthy, healthy, powerful we may be or think we are, we may, we will all experience suffering in some form or another. And this suffering will take many different forms, physical pain, emotional turmoil, existential angst, such as this life and this wheel of samsara. And that knowing sets my heart trembling and quivering. So the Buddha described compassion as the trembling of the heart in response to suffering. The heart's connection to all beings and the understanding of dukkha, of unsatisfactoriness of suffering. And compassion is, of course, one of the two wings which support us in this flight to freedom and flying to freedom. Wisdom being the other wing, holding the deep understanding of the not-self nature of things. And through practice, we can create a refuge of belonging, a beloved community, as Dr. King would call it. And I believe that metta and karuna, loving kindness and compassion, are threads that connect our practice, the Dhamma, and social transformation. Recognizing the fragile balance of life encourages us to cultivate patience and kindness and understanding, and not only towards others, but also towards ourselves. It prompts us to work with purpose and integrity and also take in moments to simply be, to breathe, to observe. From the Samyutta Nikaya. Monks, the establishment of mindfulness is to be practiced with the thought, I'll watch after myself. The establishing of mindfulness is to be practiced with the thought, I'll watch after others. When watching after other, when watching after yourself, you watch after others. When watching after others, you watch after yourself. And how do you watch after yourself when watching after others? It's through endurance, through harmlessness, through a mind of goodwill, through compassion. This is how you watch after yourself when watching after others. Compassion supports us in connecting with others. It cuts through that small sense of self while fostering some sense of emotional intelligence and well-being. It harbors a desire for all beings to be free from suffering. See, again, this awareness imbued with compassion that unfolds as a great wisdom, something that's clearly needed at this time. There's a story that I particularly enjoyed, enjoyed over the years. It's a story from a book called The Heart's Code, written by a psychoneuroimmunologist named Paul Pearsall. And the premise of the book is that the heart has the capacity to both know and remember in a way that's distinct from and as powerful as the brain. And this particular story illustrates how the hearts of some heart, plant, heart transplant recipients seem to hold the memories that were from the person whose heart they received. So before the skeptics get started, don't get me wrong. 
I know this probably transcends some of what science knows, and yet I believe there's a beauty and power in the fragility and vulnerability of all that are involved in this story, and it's worthy of consideration. So David and Glinda have an argument while driving, and it didn't get resolved, and they sat silently in this resentful energy. They later got into a car accident, and David died. His heart was donated and Glinda wanted to meet the recipient of David's heart. A meeting was arranged between Glinda and a young man whose life was saved by the gift of her husband's heart. Now, before the meeting, Glinda, herself a doctor, said she felt the presence of her husband tugging at her heart. And at that very moment, the door to the hospital chapel where they were meeting opened and in walked a young man and his mother. Glinda said, can I put my hand on your chest and hold his heart? I mean, your heart. And the young man nodded yes. He unbuttoned his shirt, took her hand, and gently placed it against his chest. She began to tremble and tears rolled down her cheek. She closed her eyes and whispered, I love you, David. Everything is copacetic. She hugged the young man and they wiped tears from their eyes. They sat down a little bit away from the others in the room and held hands in silence. The young man's mother, speaking in a heavy Spanish accent, told the doctors who were there that her son uses this word copacetic all the time. He never used it before he got his new heart. Everything is copacetic was the very first thing that he said to me after the surgery. Glinda, overhearing this and her eyes widened, she turned towards the mother and said, when David and I made up after an argument, that was our signal that everything was okay. They discovered the young man used to be a vegetarian and into heavy metal music, and now he craves meat and fatty foods and now loves R&B and classic soul. Glinda matter-of-factly said, her husband loved meat, played in a Motown cover band. Hmm. The fragility and vulnerability of this life, right? A literal story of holding others in our hearts. And of course, cultivating the capacity and openness to hold others should not require a heart transplant. We can be supported to meet the fragility of life with consistent practice and continuity of mindfulness. We can tune into awareness. And of course, in tuning into awareness, we tune into the heart. And once we're able to connect deeply to the heart, we're unable to push ourselves and others out. We begin to incline the heart mind towards an openness that invites us to regard others with compassion. We learn to hold ourselves and others in the heart in these ever-widening circles of compassion extending beyond our immediate circles of friends and family. The purpose of my teaching of the holy life of the Dhamma is not for gaining merit, nor good deeds, nor rapture, nor concentration, but for the sure heart's release 
This and this alone is the reason for the teachings, the Buddha. One of my favorite things from my childhood was to hear my grandfather, who was a deacon at a church, give what was called the report of the sick and the shut-in. He would start off, our brothers and sisters may be shut in, but they are not shut out of our hearts. And this particular church program was called the Good Samaritan, and it served those who were sick, who could no longer come to church because of old age, living in senior homes. This is pre-Zoom. We were grieving, that were grieving and mourning. And the Good Samaritan program attended to all of these folks. They brought food, they cleaned houses, they maintained property, they sang and prayed to folks, they sat with them. So these folks always remained a part of the congregation, a part of the community. And the congregation would offer words of encouragement at the church service and Everyone would be holding hands and each hand in the church would be physically connected to another until we were all connected symbolically in this harnessing of of, of generosity and love and kindness, meeting the fragility of the moment with compassion. And my grandfather once said that the role of the ministry was to know them in mind and embrace them by heart, to know them in mind and embrace them by heart. When I was in college, before I moved to California, I had a, a brief period of time where I was able to live with both my grandfather and father, three generations of men for a summer. And I saw one of my, my grandfather's journals. From the church that had his handwriting. in, it. And he would write these journals so that my brother and I had something to do in church other than sort of poke and pick at each other. And he would ask us questions or we would ask him questions. And in this particular page of the journal, the questions were all faded out over the years. But his answer to whatever it was he, we, we asked him was there. And it says, one day I'll die. And I'll die having known a good life of service. And yet I could have loved more. I could have especially loved others more. This love expresses itself as a care and concern for my neighbors, my friends, my family, and everyone I come in touch with. I let that love permeate me, overcome me, overwhelm me, and then direct me. One day, I will die and I'll die having known a good life of service, and yet I could have loved more. I could have especially loved others more. This love expresses itself as a care and concern for my neighbors, my friends, my family, and everyone I come in touch with. I let that love permeate me, overcome me, overwhelm me, and then direct me. The practice of service to meet the fragility and vulnerability of life, love in action, similar, very similar to the Metta Sutta. So I'm back here in Berkeley and I was uh, thinking for, for a number of years, I led various school programs. I taught kindergarten and led camps here, here in, uh, in Berkeley. And some years ago, I had an opportunity to lead a school program for a group of five to eight-year-olds. And after a couple of weeks of informal lessons on empathy and compassion and gratitude, which is all my effort to mitigate some of the fighting and hurt feelings that were becoming quite intense and really sort of taking over the day. 
And I had the kids write and talk about the experience of empathy, putting themselves in someone else's shoes and, and compassion in relation to each other. And so I started to ask them to let me know if the feeling of compassion or empathy ever seemed like it came to mind during the day. And every now and then I had a few kids would remember and they would run up to me and tell me how they felt when someone didn't have cookies in their lunch or someone fell from the play structure or they lost in a game or someone whose parent came to pick them up late. And my favorite was a little one who ran up to me to tell me that they felt deeply for this other little boy because he had four moms and how that was a whole lot of people to boss you around. And then he goes on to tell me that one of the moms is named Jenna, who was a friend of mine. So he says, one of the moms is Jenna and the other are called the exes. They're all called the exes. And I said, well, I don't, I don't, I, I don't think they're called the exes, but, but I, I know what you mean. So what prevents us from meeting life's fragilities, from being vulnerable, from meeting suffering? The stress of societal competition, consuming, unexamined stories, old tropes, legacies of oppressions, internalized homophobia, racism, hyperperformance and productivity, the obsession with multitasking, et cetera, et cetera. All of these things, right, exacerbating the regression to flight, fight, and freeze, right? It's almost, it's this cultivating a race to the bottom. And it's our condition, our conditioning is often really to shrink or to contract from suffering. We often don't allow ourselves to meet the vulnerability that's actually in the field. So cultivating fierce compassion, meeting the fragility and vulnerability of life, Cultivating fierce compassion means having the courage as well as the intention, the clear intention to lean into suffering and to be touched, allowing the heart to be moved into action. And it's often those outside of our immediate friend and family circles that we look away from. Those that we deem strangers, others, those that live over there, those beings that it becomes easy to typecast, to stereotype, who become what Tara Brock calls the unreal others, right? It's those of a different gender, race, orientation, color, geographic, location, political affiliation. It's the undocumented, the newly immigrated, those that are Jewish, those that are queer, those that are older, those that are black, those that are Asian, and on and on and on, many. Many in this country and, and countries across the globe are routinely lumped into these groups of unreal others. So a story about George Dawson, a man who, in a very courageous way, met the fragility and vulnerability of life. So George was a 102-year-old Black man when he told the story of an unreal other, himself. For most of his life, George had endured a particularly brutal form of racism and segregation widespread growing up in East Texas. At about eight years old, he had witnessed the lynching of a boy who had been a friend. When he was 65, he was doing yard work for a living. He was working for a woman who had left his lunch out on the back porch with her dogs. And George said, now, 
She didn't see me from the shadow of this tree, but I watched her put down the two bowls on the floor for the dogs. And another she set up on a shelf that was just above the reach of the dogs. I climbed up onto the porch and lifted the bowl off the shelf. It looked good and as hungry as I was, it smelled even better. I was looking for a chair to sit down in a quiet spot to say grace when I looked down and saw the two dogs and they were eating the same food that was there for me on the shelf. And that wasn't such a surprise back then. People didn't buy dog food in bags like they do now. Dogs mostly ate leftovers from the table. But what hit me was that she expected that I would eat out on the porch with the dogs. I didn't have to eat in their dining room, but back in the kitchen would have been all right. I told myself that I was good enough to eat a meal with people, not dogs. I set the bowl back on the shelf. Now being hungry wasn't so easy. I know she didn't plan to insult me. She just didn't know better. Still, she could believe what she wanted, but I wasn't an animal and I wasn't gonna eat with the dogs. And if I did, she'd go on believing that. And maybe she would have been right at that point. Late in the afternoon, she came by. Did you see the lunch that I left out on the porch, George? Yes, I nodded. Saw the dogs on the porch. Well, the lunch on the shelf was for you. It was a good lunch. Thank you, I'm sure it was. But it's just that I don't eat with dogs. And as I said that, I looked her straight in the eye. And I could tell that she understood what I meant. She got angry and red in the face, but I didn't turn away. I didn't look down for the first time. I didn't look down. I eat with people. I'm a human being. Her face tightened and her look changed from meanness to anger, from her mother and father and back through to her grandparents and great grandparents. I could see a hundred years of anger, I swear, and fear coming out towards me. I stood up. I stood up to it. And I repeated, I'm a human being. She was so angry. She couldn't speak. I waited and finally in a cold tone, she said, you don't need to come back here anymore. And I said, mm -hmm. that's right. I don't need to. the inability to see another human being as a human being, to only see the unreal other has left a legacy of colonialism, genocide and enslavement in this country and others. It's a legacy that refuses to bear witness, refuses to tell the truth. If we wanna meet the fragility of life, then we must admit how deeply our lives intertwine On one occasion, riding a Greyhound bus from a small town to the big city, the young person was clearly in distress, exaggerated mannerisms, and tears and shaking. And, a, and the whole situation was made worse by a clerk at the bus station who had a look of disgust and was quite short and rude. And the running commentary from the coworkers and other people in the station was, what does it want? Where is it going? and snickering and laughing, and the co-signing smirks and smiles and laughter from other people in line. 
co-signing the hatred and bonding and creating an other. And the young person was so distraught that they were dropping the money that they needed for the ticket and fumbling around. A man finally pushes forward after hearing all this take place and buys a ticket for them. And during the boarding process, the young person who was the target of this inhumanity, this hatred, walked by and yelled, I'm an effing human. I'm a person. I'm trans. Thank you all for your help while I was being bullied. And they walked towards the back. A couple minutes passed and other folks got on the bus and person walked back up the aisle after the bus was moving and said, thank you. Thank you very much to the man who had helped them buy the ticket. And the man said, hey, there's room enough for all of us on this planet. I'm happy to help. It's the right thing to do. My name's Don. What's your name? And the young person said, my name's Taylor. Nice to share the planet with you. Yes, said Don. I put myself in your shoes and here we are. People are just so afraid. They're just so afraid. A bunch of cowards. Taylor said, Don, I'd happily put myself in your shoes, but a girl's got fashion standards to uphold. And they both cracked up, belly laughing loudly and smiled, and they went about their day. And some of you might have figured out that as narrator, I was on the bus. And I sat quietly in a deep guilt and shame and disappointment that I failed to be a light, to be a resource, to be a helper. And to be fair, there was some trauma that kicked in and kicked up for me that kept me frozen in that moment. And I vowed to better resource myself in the future so that I could be available for myself and available for others. I was not surprised, yet I was shocked by the display of hatred and deeply moved by the display of support that this man, Don, had offered. And I've never forgotten about what I had not done, but I didn't wallow in it either. I know there's nothing outside this practice. There's nothing outside this practice. I did become better educated about, one, about what some folks have to go through in this world. Learning yet again that there's nothing outside of this practice. Compassion begins with mindfulness, letting ourselves recognize and be touched by discomfort, pain and suffering our own and others, sensing again how deeply our lives intertwine and responding with a heartfelt presence. It's touching hearts and allowing our hearts to be touched. It's deep listening. It's breathing in and breathing out. It's breathing in the realness, the rawness of what's here, and we breathe out. We offer our care and our tenderness that's how we meet the marginalized, the vulnerable. That's how we meet the fragility of life. And at times we may feel overrun or overwhelmed by our 
own suffering and that of others, feeling a bit thin-skinned. I've been there. And we may feel that the vulnerability is too much. And of course, it's wise to be discerning and appropriate to ground and resource, and perhaps turning our attention to something neutral in order to breathe, in order to ground and find space. And sometimes we underestimate our capacity and our resources. If you perceive yourself as simply a self carrying all the world's suffering, then of course there's not going to be the space needed to hold it all. But imagining ourselves in another's shoes as a part of a flow, as a part of a universe that is breathing in and out, expanding and contracting, we can be in the flow, in the great spaciousness. We can be the sky holding all of the weather patterns and not just the dark cloud. It's from this place that we can experience a heart ready for anything. Howard Thurman said, in the stillness of the quiet, if we listen, we can hear the whisper of the heart giving strength to weakness, courage to fear, hope to despair. In the stillness of the quiet, if we listen, we can hear the whisper of the heart giving strength to weakness, courage to fear, hope to despair. So I encourage you, if you're fortunate enough to know the coming days, I invite you to pause, to breathe, and to truly engage with whatever the moment is at hand. Remember the preciousness of this existence, the fleeting beauty of each experience. Let this awareness permeate your actions, infusing your work and your relationships with mindfulness and compassion. This is the practice of the Dhamma in the everyday, the extraordinary found in the ordinary. Life's fragility isn't a mistake. It isn't a curse. It's a poignant reminder to live fully, to live mindfully, and to live with kindness. And in this mindful living, we come closer to understanding the truth of the Dhamma. And I hope within this, there's something to inspire you, that moved you, that there was some support and benefit. And again, you take it in, leave the rest. And I'll leave you with these words of, of, of the late Carl Sagan from, a, from this perspective of looking back at Earth from space. Look again at that dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you ever heard of, every human being who ever was lived out their lives. The aggregate of our joy and suffering, thousands of confident religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and present, Every young couple in love, every mother and father, every hopeful child, inventor, explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar and supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived here, lived there on a moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam. The earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. 
Think of the rivers of blood filled by all those generals and emperors so that in glory and triumph, they could become the momentary masters of a fraction of a dot. Think of the endless cruelties visited by the inhabitants of one corner of this pixel on the scarcely distinguishable inhabitants of some other corner. How frequent their misunderstandings, how eager they are to kill one another, how fervent their hatreds. Our posturings, our self-imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe are challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. And our obscurity and all this vastness there's no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. The earth is the only world known so far to harbor life. There's nowhere else, at least in the immediate future, to which our species could migrate, visit, sure, settle, not yet. Like it or not, for the moment, the earth is where we make our stand, the only home that we have ever known. So may the merits of this practice benefit all beings and bring about some peace. Thank you all. Let's just sit for a moment and then I'll open it up for for a few comments and questions. May we be happy. May we be peaceful. May we be safe and protected. May we live with ease and well-being. And may we awaken and be free. Okay, I'll open it up. I'll see if I can do it. I see Nick, I see Nick. Yeah. Hi, thank you so much for tonight. I've been coming to this um, Monday meeting for maybe a month and a half now. And um, I have to say after all of the growth and, and the things that I try to do to grow myself, um, I've been having a hard time with um, where the direction of queerness is going. Um, I myself am a gay male, cis male, and um, I have anger in all directions, directions towards myself, towards um, the news that I read, towards the reaction to the news I read, to you know, in every direction, I, I, I try at best to react to both sides of the coin um, and not try to judge others and try to seek the perspective of others. And, and when you do that, or when I do that, try to speak an I statement, sorry. Um, you know, you really do grab a sense of what people are saying and how they're feeling. And it's, very easy to go down 
the rabbit hole in both experiences. Um, in my experience, it was hard for me to come out as a gay male. Um, I, I lived in a very um, secluded countryside area of California. And when I first came out, I was very um, proud to be out. I live in the city. I've lived here for 10 years now, and I do not feel that anymore. And it doesn't come so much from scarcity or anything from that perspective, but it, I think it's becoming a state of not understanding where people are sitting anymore. Um, I really don't know how to properly verbalize this without sounding maybe, um, you know, uneducated on, on either side. And, and that's kind of maybe even the problem is that I feel like everybody's very educated on their points of view, but that doesn't really come down to the problem that the singularity of us all just being human beings, um, the shouting and screaming of needing to be what we are is, is hard for me to swallow. And so that's where my pain is. Um, and kind of wanting to go about my business every day without having to deal with so much trauma on either side is very hard to access. So I, I don't know if there's a question there, but <laughs> that's, that's where I'm at. So it's pride month and I'm not feeling very prideful, I guess that maybe that's the question. Thank you for tonight. Thank you very much, Nick. And there doesn't have to be a, a, a question there. I, I heard all of what you said and, and it's very, very, very rich and, and very full. And I, I think, mm, I mean, immediately what comes up for me is, is, is having compassion for you or, or you like practicing having self-compassion for all that you're holding, right? I mean, you're talking about a number of things and it feels like there's a great effort to understand and there's a great effort to, to be in alignment with your values and, 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 and integrity and, and see others fully. And right, that that's also it, it takes a lot of time, right? I mean, we we often want want whatever we want to to happen within weeks or days, and and at times there's an ebb and flow. There's a time at times that there's a forgetting. Um, someone just put meta, and I was like, oh, meta is, is the answer for everything. Absolutely, it is the answer for everything. Um, you know, and, and, and I can relate to that. I really, so, you know, I've, I've just, I've been living in, in New England for the last five years. I lived in a pretty uh, small town in a rural area. It's about as, uh, as uh, lovely and beautiful and with the exception of all the snow and the cold, um, uh, safe and on and on and on. And I realized this particular daily mind state and frame that I had of, of my beautiful corner of the world and I've just come back to Berkeley and noticing my hypervigilance is up. And um, I live in a house here and just down the block from me, I'm guessing two, three, four hundred folks living on the streets and campers and unhoused. And how on one hand there's compassion and on another hand, they're too close to me. They're bothering me. I don't want to see it. Like all of those things, and right? And then there's all the guilt and shame that comes up with that of like wanting everybody to have all that they need. And, but I'm going to need you to like, you know, be in El Cerrito, not here. Be in Oakland, not here, right? And, right? and those are pleading thoughts. That's, that's not something that's there that I'm just wallowing in, but it is something 
that that comes up and what do I do with that? It, it is one, it's having, having uh, self-compassion for myself for having those thoughts. They're, they're, they're thoughts that that's not a solid identity of mine. It, it, it is a thought. And also um, trying my best to, to stay informed and educated about what is happening and why it's happening and what can be done and what can I do. And there are many days, right, that um, it feels like there's nothing I can do. And sometimes it feels like the best I can do is write a check and some, on and on and on, right? So, 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 so we do what it is that we can do rather than take on all of it, you know? And at the same time, right, I have the thoughts of, I could just go back to New England. I could just be in my little tiny place because somehow nothing will affect me there. And I've had those thoughts and I do occasionally I get on the plane and I'm gone, I'm out of here. And I soothe my nervous system and all of that. And it's, it's an interesting thing. I mean, we're interesting creatures that we do, but I no longer think of myself as, as bad. And, and, and I realize that guilt is, is just there. It's, it's bleeding. It comes and goes and compassion I try to stick as close to that as I possibly can. I mean, the whole reason for me offering this talk is a reminder for myself also, a reminder of the fragility and vulnerability of life. And I actually, I just want to say to you, that just thank you for, for the, the, the courage and, and the honesty to speak your truth, to speak what's going on for you. Thank you. And I see a couple of, I don't know which was first. I see, oh, I thought it was the same name. It's not Christine and Christian. We'll go there. Christine and then Christian. Okay. First of all, thank you, Devin, for a very inspirational talk. And I just wanted to say something uh, as I reflected on what Nick had to say. Mm-hmm. Um I've been an out lesbian for 50 years, slightly longer than I'd been a Buddhist. And, you know, I was reflecting today on how it seems like I have never seen so much uh, hostility, actually, that's come toward the, the gay community. And that's that's hurtful, of course. But also, I don't remember a time when there's been so much support. And I think we have to really focus on that. I went to the uh, Santa Rosa Pride, uh, Pride Parade last weekend. And just in, before the um, all the police vehicles came through, there was a police officer in full uniform walking down the street, holding hands with his soon-to-be husband. Mm. And, I mean, we didn't see things like that 20, 30 years ago. And people were cheering, and, you know, there were families, uh, moms and dads with their kids there, and it was an incredible celebration. And I think it's it's... It's true that there is a lot of animosity. There's a lot of hatred. All the things that you talked about tonight. But we can't forget that there's also a lot of love, a lot of joy, a lot of acceptance that I'm grateful for. And just, 
you know, to say to Nick, you know, it gets better. It gets better. And you have to start by loving yourself. And thank you, Devin. I will be watching this, this uh, Dharma talk again on the, re the recording. Thank you, Christine. Thank you very much from something you that you said. Yeah, so there, there are the, the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. You know, one of the first things that I heard in, in my Dharma practice when I uh, came to San Francisco in the early 80s, early to mid 80s, um, and pretty lost, actually quite lost at, at that time and, and looking for um, something to anchor me or to ground me. And I made my way at some point in time to Hartford Street Zen Center. And there was a man there, Isan Dorset. And I went in because, well, one, it just looked like a hell of a lot of fun. It was in the Castro and there was lots going on. And I go inside the building and I remember the first time that I saw the sitting there, because I'd been to the Zen Center before and they sat facing the wall and they were all in black. And I was like, well, I, I, I really can't do this. Like this, this, this is not me. Um, but he had a set of robes on and, you know, he, he talked for a bit and then he came back out and he'd gone back in the back and he came out and he had another set of robes on. And I was like, this is a full on, this is a costume change. This is a Dharma teacher with a costume change. He was a former drag queen way back. And he gave me the best meditation instruction. And I was actually quite traumatized at the time and really unable to close my eyes to sit for meditation and they had a little garden, a flower garden, and he gave me the instruction. To go into the garden and cut some flowers and get a vase and arrange the flowers and watch them. And that was my meditation instruction. And I could do that. He pulled me into the Sangha and into the practice with his kindness and with his, with his compassion. And I gained a lot of strength and courage from what he taught me, from what he guided me. And I was better able to deal with the number of men and friends that were dying by the hour at that time. So I've always held that. And there was something he, he would say, this, the, um, hell, it was, it was Helen Keller that said, he would say, offer the sing of Helen Keller, that the world is full of, so, full of suffering and also full of the overcoming of suffering, that both of those things are true. Thank you, Christine. Christian. Um, Devin, thank you so much for tonight's talk. Like Christine, um, I was very moved. And in particular, the story on the bus um, was particularly striking to me because of the level of vulnerability that you, you invited us into. And I wondered if you might maybe tell us a little bit more about how you then leaving that um, situation, you resourced yourself. You mentioned that you, instead of wallowing in guilt, actually thought to yourself, this is what happened, and I don't feel good about it. But then you went ahead and resourced yourself. And um, 
I've certainly been in moments like the one you described where I felt like I could have been um, a better ally, a better person. And I'm curious, at least for you, what worked in terms of resourcing yourself so you could find your voice, your courage, if that were to happen again? Absolutely. So, so there was, you know, to be truthful, there was a little bit of wallowing at first. So the trip that I was taking, I ended up not taking the trip. I went back because I was so thrown and shaken that I um, could not be in that moment as a helper and ally. And I didn't feel like I was, ultimately I figured out that I wasn't actually in immediate threat, that I probably could have said something and done something and it would have been fine. Now there are plenty of situations that happened on the street that can happen on the street or wherever that I know that it would also put me in harm's way and there are other things to do. But this was an opportunity that I could have been a clear ally and, 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 and I did not at that time. So my, my standard go-to and probably the same for a number, number of people is beating myself up. That used to be it, beating myself up about what I didn't do. This time there was acknowledging that I didn't do that, fully sitting in that. I didn't act and behave in a way that was going to, that, that was helpful to me, that, that was of, of integrity, um, that was of this aspiration that I've had of, of protecting myself and, and others. And so in the full acknowledgement of all of that, then there's the move to compassion. There's the move to self-compassion. There's a move to directly educate myself about folks in the trans community, which I had not done up to that point. Up to that point, it was almost like I just wanted to not know, to not see, to not have to figure it out, to not have to think about it. And I knew that had to change. And that did change. Immediately, the way, one way of resourcing myself was to become educated not make, not have my stories, my assumption, right? Because we can create all kinds of stories about, about who somebody is and their identity and on and on and on. But it was to educate myself. And also realizing at that time that when I said I was frozen, I was frozen because I was thinking at that time that this was happen, happening. I was, it's like, I wasn't really putting myself in that person's shoes. I was remembering a time when I was bullied. And what I came to is in this moment, in that moment, I was not being bullied. That was not happening. That was a thought. That was a memory. It was like, oh, that's a memory. The thought, that's not actually happening. If this is happening to someone else and to be present, I needed to witness, I needed to see, I needed to feel and understand what's happening in this body and mind and checking out what's going on for the other person. I needed to not be in make-believe world. I needed to be here. So some of so some of that. Thank you. And it's a story, right? This is a story I, I, it's like that I've recently added to some Dharma talks and things because I think it's been helpful, right? You, otherwise, you'll get this idea, right, that I sit here or that whatever Dharma teaches sits, sits there and we've learned what we've learned and we meditate every day and, you know, I wrap a shawl around me and talk to you in a really nice, soft voice. And now that's a bunch of BS. <laughs> it's complete BS. 
what happened on that bus happened and I was there and I didn't do a damn thing. And I learned from it. I think we might have time for one more. And if it's not a question, if it's just a comment, that's fine as well. It doesn't have to be a, a question. It looks like someone that's on an iPhone doesn't have your name. And do you, your name? Could you could you please give us your name? Ganby. I see Ganby. Gabby. <laughs> Sorry, I muted myself. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'll try to turn on my turn on my video. I um. I loved your talk and uh, where you stifle. Um, it was, I didn't do the sit because I, I tried to hike after work to release all the stress from work. And, and I was reflecting about what you were saying about helping others and stuff. But my profession uh, requires a lot of um, uh, limit setting because it's hard to, like, I don't, I used to be more like a rescuer mm -hmm. and I needed to put, I need to set limits with that. And I didn't want to start feeling guilty, right? Because like you were saying today, it's good to be compassionate towards others. And if, you're comp if you are able to support others, you support yourself, like vice versa. But it's um, like, it's hard for me, right? To let go of that. Like I'm not responsible for the people's happiness. I, I, mm -hmm. I'm not. And I had, and that was creating a lot of suffering for me. But also hearing you tonight is like, oh my gosh, should I go back to helping that person? Right? <laughs> I, I I contemplate a lot or reach mm -hmm. out, but I can only reach out so much, right? And and I hope the only way I, I deal with it is like I hope somebody else shows up on their path, just like I showed up mm -hmm. for that time. Mm -hmm. But I wonder if you have any other way to deal with that right because i don't want to yeah. feel guilty like you said Absolutely. right now like you know yes that th thank you gabby thank you well so one um feeling guilty ultimately is isn't going to be helpful and we can't help everyone you know so you there's also the having compassion for self right filling yourself with compassion here limits and boundary are good things to have. It's good to have a limits and boundaries. There are plenty of, of, of situations and places and people that I would love to help. And in this moment, at this particular time, I cannot. And I can be clear about that. I cannot. It is not, you know, to me to help every single, this is even within my own family. There are certain things that I can do. And if I can't, the hardest thing was actually learning to say, I can't right now. I can't do this right now to have that boundary and to have that limit, right? It took quite a while to get to that, to get to that place and say, you know what? I would love to be able to help you. I can't, I can't in this moment. I don't have the capacity. I don't have the bandwidth right now. 
right? We do what we can and we do what we can when we can. It doesn't mean like just completely and totally running yourself down and running yourself ragged to help someone else is actually not helping yourself. There isn't compassion there, right? So we, we, don't, we don't want to compound it. You know, when you're fortified and the energy's back up and the time and everything is there, then you can do that. It is, I think, limits and boundaries are, are, are healthy. Absolutely. I had to learn that for, for myself as, as well, working, you know, in the nonprofit world and working with youth. There were times when I just had to completely back away. There were jobs that I had to walk away from. When I worked in, in San Francisco um, for a number of years and we were helping to take young women off the streets that had been trafficked and I saw myself as a hero and I saw myself as a savior. But in order to do that, the number of, the number of vices that I had to pick up and that I had to do, I was, you know, at, at, I was at the place of homelessness and addiction so that I could help other people get off the street. That's ridiculous and absurd. And the nonprofit world that I was in will do that. We'll do that. We'll use every single bit of you. And it's actually not helpful. It's just not helpful. I had to completely, completely and totally back away. That's how I ended up in the, in the Dharma, was, was all the work I did in, in the nonprofit world, in the social work world. I needed a rest and a reset, and I would go to retreats, and one led to another, and eventually I had to be completely back away because I realized that I no longer had boundaries and I no longer had limits. I wasn't actually helping anyone else. I, was, I needed saving. So I learned to cultivate loving kindness and insight and compassion to save myself so that I can then help others. Thank you. Thank you, Debbie. Well, it's about that time. Thank you all very much. I appreciate it. It was lovely to, to be back. And um, thank you for practicing this evening and, and for, for listening. Mm. May the merits of this practice benefit all beings and bring about peace. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.